terrible happened in the early hours of March 13, 1964. A 28-year-old woman named Kitty Genovese was stabbed and raped outside of her apartment building in New York City. And that's bad. But what makes the situation even worse is that as she was being stabbed and raped, 38 people stood by and watched the entire thing take place. And no one did anything to help her. No one even called the cops. And so Kitty died that day. And the effect or the the phenomenon that happened became known as the bystander effect. Essentially, the bystander effect states that the more people there are in a group, the less likely an individual is to take action. And that's for a number of reasons, right? Uh, Someone might assume that someone else in the group will be the one to step up and help out. So there's a large group of people, they see something bad is happening, and they assume someone else is going to step up and take responsibility. Other people, they uh, assume that maybe someone else within the group is more qualified to actually get involved and help out, more qualified than they are, and so they don't do anything. And still, even more people are afraid that if they were to get involved, they might end up making the situation worse. And so what ends up happening is no one does anything. They just stand by and watch as tragedy unfolds. And I I thought about that situation and that phenomenon as I was studying this passage because it seems to me that the church is suffering from the same problem. You see, the big problem in our world today is sin. Sin has laid waste to society, to morals, to decency, to proper thinking, to holiness, and it's a problem that has to be taken care of. And so not only is there a great problem in our world today, but there's also a great need. People need to hear about Jesus. Amen, church? People need to hear about Jesus. They need to hear about the gospel and how Jesus delivers people from this great problem of sin. And yet... The reality that we face is that we are living in a sin-sick world in which the number of people who will spend eternity in hell is rising every single day. And by and large, the church is standing by doing nothing. If we want to be even more specific, the church is sitting by doing nothing. We know that people need to hear about Jesus. We know that people need to hear the gospel. We know that sinners need to be saved. But like the bystander effect states, so many people just assume, well, someone else will do it, right? Yes, I'm a Christian. I know that people need to hear about Jesus, but I'm sure someone else will tell them about Jesus. Like the bystander effect states, so many Christians assume, well, maybe there's someone more qualified, to go and tell others about Jesus, like the pastor, because he only works one day a week. He doesn't have enough going on. So I don't need to tell people about Jesus. The pastor will go and tell them about Jesus. For other people, they do worry that they might make the situation worse, right? That's a legitimate concern. They start wondering, well, if I tell someone about Jesus, what if they start asking a bunch of questions that I don't know the answer to and I can't answer? I don't want to lead them astray. And so what do so many Christians do? They just decide to do nothing. They sit in their nice, comfy sanctuaries and they do nothing as so many lost in our world die without knowing 
Jesus. And my question as I was wondering this, reading this and studying this was, what could possibly change that? What could possibly cause the church to get involved and get active and go and tell others about Jesus? And I'll put it to you like this. If my wife or my two sons were in a life or death situation, if they were in danger, I would immediately rush to their aid. And it would not be primarily because that is my responsibility as a husband and a father. I wouldn't be worried about, well, is someone else in the group going to step up and get involved? I wouldn't be thinking about if someone was more qualified. I wouldn't be worried about making the situation worse. I would immediately get involved for one reason and one reason only. Because I love my wife and my children. I would be moved to action out of love for them. And that's how it has to be for the church as well. We must be moved by love. See, here's what Jesus is telling us in this passage. Christians won't get active until they get a heart of compassion. That's what Jesus had. That's what we're going to see in this passage, that when Jesus looked at the world, he didn't just feel sorry for them, he loved them, and he did something about the situation they were in. And the same is true for Christians today. Christians won't get active until we get a heart of compassion. And as we go through this passage this morning, here's what I want us to be thinking about. Here's what I want us to wonder. What does it actually look like for Christians to have a heart of compassion. Because that's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot, right? Like, oh, I, I feel so much compassion for them. I feel sorry for them. I feel bad for them. It's one thing to throw out that phrase, a, a compassionate heart. But my question is, well, what does that actually practically look like in our world today? What does it look like for a Christian to actually have a heart of compassion? And I think by and large, it really starts with how you see people when you look at them. Notice what the Bible says here in verse 35. And Jesus, he went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So we've been seeing Jesus do this for a while now, right? All throughout chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew, Jesus has been on the move. He's been casting out demons. He's been healing people. He's been cleansing people, raising people from the dead. And the Bible is saying here, here is the paradigm ministry. This is what Jesus was doing. He was going into all the towns, all the villages. He was proclaiming the good news. He was teaching and explaining the scriptures. He was meeting people right where they were at. And my question to you is, well, how do you see people? Jesus went to people. He saw them in a particular way. How do you see people when you look at them? There's, There's going to be a sharp contrast here between how Jesus saw people and how the religious leaders of Israel saw people. Because all throughout the, the, the Gospel of Matthew so far, and it's going to continue throughout the Gospel of Matthew for the next 20 years as we're studying this book together, <clears throat> you're going to see the religious leaders of Israel are constantly looking down upon people. They, they thought that people were lesser thans. They, they were polluted people. They were people to be avoided. They might bring them down. They might corrupt them. And so the religious leaders of Israel, who were supposed to be the shepherds of the flock of Israel, wanted nothing to do with them. They avoided them at all costs. But I want you to notice what Jesus sees when he looks at people. Look at verse 36. When he, being Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. 
You see, there's a picture being painted here. When Jesus looks at people, he doesn't see them simply as commoners to be avoided. Jesus looks at people and he doesn't see lesser thans who might bring him down or pollute him or contaminate him. No, when Jesus looks at people, he sees a flock of sheep who have suffered a brutal attack by ravenous wolves. Now again, that's a bit of a a reference to the religious leaders of Israel who were supposed to be shepherds of Israel, but they had largely failed and they had become like wolves who were taking advantage of their own flocks. And so Jesus looks out and he sees a flock of sheep who have suffered a great attack. And you might be wondering, well, pastor, where do you get that? Well, it's right there in those words. Look at that first word, harassed. They were harassed, Jesus says. In the Greek, that word harassed is actually very graphic. In Greek, the word harassed, it literally means flayed. It was the exact word that they would use to describe the skin of sheep that had been flayed open after they had suffered an attack by a wolf and the wolf had ripped it apart. That's the the graphic word that Jesus uses here. Also, that word helpless, it it literally means thrown down. And, And so notice what Jesus is seeing. He looks at people and Jesus sees a massacre. He sees sheep that have been thrown down and ripped open by ravenous wolves. And Jesus is filled with compassion for them. Even that word compassion, it's it's not the common word used for sympathy or empathy in the Bible. No, this word is visceral. In the Greek, this word literally means to feel in the bowels or the entrails. Or, as we might say, in the guts, right? We still kind of use the phrase that way. You might tell someone, I've got a gut feeling about this. What are you saying? You're saying, I don't really know how to describe it, but it's just deep within me. It's a, it's a part of me. And in the deepest part of me, I'm telling you, this is how I feel. And that's exactly what the Bible is saying here about Jesus. He is saying that when Jesus looked at people and he saw their condition and he saw their helplessness, and he saw their great need, Jesus felt for them in the deepest parts of himself. But I want you to notice this too. In contrast to many in our world today, Jesus doesn't just stand around feeling things, does he? And he doesn't just encourage others to stand around feeling things. Jesus takes action to address the need that is present here. Look at verses 37 through 38. The Bible says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So listen to me. Yes, Jesus does want us to see people rightly. And yes, Jesus does want us to have compassion for people. But he wants that compassion to actually move us to action. Jesus is essentially saying, don't just stand there, do something. Don't just stand around feeling things for other people, do something about it. And what's the very first thing he tells his people to do? Pray. Isn't it amazing how so many Christians stand around scratching their head going, I don't know what we're going to do. How on earth are we going to reach all the lost in the world? I have no idea what kind of strategy we need. I don't know how to plan this and organize this and all this kind of stuff. We stand around scratching our heads and Jesus goes, hold on, hold on. Have you prayed? (laughs) Have you even prayed about it? 
That's what he tells his people to do. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. You see, one of the biggest problems we have as Christians today is so often we view people with the eyes of the Pharisees rather than the eyes of Jesus, don't we? We look at people with the eyes of the Pharisees and judge them and condemn them and call them out rather than seeing them with the eyes of Jesus and having compassion for them having mercy on them, extending grace to them. So often, how quick are Christians to to look at people who are not yet believers and they see how they're living and Christians go, well, I know where they're going when they die. How dare the church stand around and say things like that? I know where they're going when they die. What have you done about it? What on earth have you done about it? Have you gone and proclaimed the gospel to them? Have you told them to, uh, about Jesus? Have you told them about His saving grace and His mercy and His death upon the cross? Don't stand around condemning people to hell when you haven't even told them how to be reconciled to God in Christ. But that's what we do, isn't it? We stand around, we condemn, we look at people and we, we think that they're beneath us. We don't want to have any sort of interaction with them. And then what gets me is so often in the church today, people stand around and they go, well, of course the church is struggling today. No one's interested in Jesus anymore. No one's interested in Jesus. No one's interested in the gospel. No one's interested in church. And so we, we scratch our heads. We go, I guess, I guess it must be the end times because the church is dwindling and, and all these things are happening and no one's interested in Jesus. No one's interested in the church. And I want you to understand, please Understand what Jesus is saying here. He's saying the problem is not a lack of potential Christ followers. The problem is a lack of faithful Christ followers. That's the problem. We're we're condemning people going, no one's interested in Jesus. And Jesus goes, the harvest is plentiful. What are you talking about? These people are ready. If only there were some laborers to go out into the harvest and reap it. The problem is not a lack of potential Christ followers. It is a lack of faithful Christ followers. We like to condemn others. And Jesus always says, oh, point that finger back at yourself there. What are you doing, Christian? What are you doing, church? And so listen, you might be here this morning and you might be saying to yourself, listen, pastor, I do care about the lost. I do feel for the lost. I I hate that they are living in sin. I hate that if they were to die today, they would go to hell. I hate that they don't know Jesus and they haven't been saved. And I, I, I just feel so sorry for them. And I want to tell you, that's great that you feel that way. But please don't actually miss what Jesus is saying here. Those who truly feel compassion are those who actually take action. So we're wondering, what does it look like for Christians to have a heart of compassion? Jesus is saying, those who truly, actually do feel compassion are those who actually take action. I mean, imagine you had been there on that day that that young woman, Kitty, was murdered. Imagine you were in the crowd and, and the person standing next to you said, oh, that poor girl. I hate that for her. I hate so badly that this is happening to her. I wish more than anything this was not happening to her. I just feel so sorry for her. 
If I was standing in the crowd next to you, I would have said, well, then why don't you do something about it? Because let me ask you a question. Does your sympathy do anything for her at all? No, not a bit. Compassion is useless without action. Do we understand that, church? Your compassion, it does no good for anyone if it never actually moves you to take action for someone. Compassion without action is useless. And so you can stand around feeling sorry for the lost all day, but if they die, they will still go to hell because unless you do something for them, your compassion is useless. If it pains you and causes you great sorrow to think about your lost family members, your lost friends, your lost co-workers, you need to realize that God has placed you in their life for a reason. If you've got lost people in your life, you don't need to be saying, I sure wish God would send them a Christian to tell them about Jesus. (laughs) What do you think you're there for? You are that person that God has sent them to tell them about Jesus. And so do something for them. If you feel sorry for them, let your compassion lead you to take action. You can tell them about Jesus yourself. Tell them about the gospel. Here's something very simple you can do. Share your testimony with them. Tell them about what God has done for you in Christ. Invite them to church. Do something, though. Don't just stand around or sit around doing nothing, saying, oh, I feel so sorry for them. It does no good. If it saddens you to think about how many people in our world have never even heard about Jesus who have never heard the gospel, who have never read one verse of scripture, if that actually does burden your heart, then why don't you set aside some money for Bible translation? Why why don't you give money to some missions organizations or to some of the missionaries that we partner with? Or, hey, better yet, why don't you sell everything and go yourself? You know, people ask me sometimes, are you afraid of losing church members? Not to something like this. It would please my heart to lose you because you say, I feel God has impressed upon my heart to send me to Nepal or to Taiwan or to any of these other places that desperately need the gospel. And you say, so I'm cashing it in. I'm selling everything and I'm going. You would have our blessing and our support. If that burdens you, go to them yourself. I mean, if you're grieved even by the amount of lost people in our own city here and you look around easily and you go, There's so many lost even in our own city. There's so many even right here who don't know Jesus, who don't have a church family. Then what you can do is what Jesus says to do here. It's very simple. Pray. Church, when's the last time you prayed for your city? We're we're, we're here. The church wants to do missions activities and get, get involved. My question is, when's the last time you prayed for Easley, South Carolina and the lost in our own city? You can pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. Here's something you could do. Pray that God would send us people here to our church, but that He wouldn't just send us people, that He would send us workers. Amen, Gene? Amen. We don't need people to come to this church and just continue to sit here and be consumers. We need people who are ready and willing to get involved in the missions activities of the church and say, I'm here for the kingdom of God. I want to go and reach the lost. I want to see people come to, to, to meet Jesus. I want to see lost souls saved. I want to build the kingdom. And so I'm in. I'm ready. That's who we need to come to this church. We do not need to fill this church up with consumers. We need people who say, I'm here for God and His kingdom. That's what it's about. You can always pray, church. 
Let me say to you like this, if your concern for others isn't even worth taking the time to pray about, then it's not actually worth being called a concern. You know, if you say, oh, I am concerned for the lost, I'm concerned for easily, but you haven't prayed about that at all. If your concern isn't even worth taking the time to pray about, it's not worth being called a concern. God forbid, God forbid that we would ever become a church and a people who call ourselves Christians and claim to have a compassion that never leads us to take action. God forbid it. You know, people talk about all the time, you ask any pastor, I call a pastor right now, I could pull it on speakerphone. First question he'd say to me is, how were you running this Sunday? What were your numbers like? That's all any pastor wants to talk about. You, you go and talk to other Christians. They go, what's your church running these days? My question, my, my response every time is, who cares? None of that matters. Do you understand that? I am not the person to talk to on this issue because, listen, y'all got me on a hobby horse now. All right, let me ride it for a second. That is all anyone wants to talk about. What are you running these days? How big's your church? What are your numbers looking like? I do not care about that at all. I would rather have a church of 35 people who are completely committed to God and His kingdom and His purposes than 3,500 people who sit in a sanctuary on Sunday morning and don't do a thing for the lost in this world. What does it matter if your church is the biggest church in Easley if you don't actually do anything for the kingdom of God? I don't care what your numbers are. I want to know, are you effective? I can handle being a small church. I can handle being a small church of barely any people. We've been there and we've done that, okay? If we have to go back to it, to God be the glory. I can handle that. I cannot handle being an ineffective church. A church that simply gathers on Sundays and Wednesdays and it's routine and they never do anything for the kingdom of God. God forbid that ever happened to us. I pray against us and I say, Lord, shut these doors and close this place forever if that ever becomes George's Creek Baptist Church. We can go back to being 12 but we will never go back to being ineffective and useless. We are here to reach people for Jesus. That is our mission. The harvest is plentiful. Where are the laborers? All right, we beat the horse. Okay, I'm off of it. Y'all got me? Okay, I'm good. That's just, that's just the point here, church. You can claim to have compassion for people. You can sit around feeling things all day, but unless you actually do something, your compassion is useless. And so, God, we pray to the Lord, never let us be an ineffective church. And we're not going to go through all the names. Jesus, he, he basically, he calls his disciples and he sends them out. I want you to notice that. He, he draws them in for the sole purpose of sending them out. So, again, I could preach a sermon on each one of these names. I'm not going to do it. That's to your advantage, okay? Not going to do it. But he, he sends out his apostles. And I want you to notice what it says in verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this can be a confusing passage for some. What will help is if you remember that Jesus is talking to his twelve apostles, not us. So there is application here for us. There's, There's relevance. But Jesus is specifically talking to his 12 apostles, which really helps us make sense of what he tells them. Because many people have looked at this and they say, well, hold on a second. 
Jesus is neglecting the Gentiles. So obviously Jesus doesn't love the Gentiles, right? No, clearly not. I mean, if you remember all through chapters 8 and 9 and now into 10, Jesus has been ministering to the Gentiles. He's been healing the Gentiles. He's been uh, interacting with them and casting out demons and all this kind of stuff. Clearly Jesus loves the Gentiles. So why would he tell his people, don't go to them, only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Well, first and foremost, you have to understand, all of Jesus' apostles, they were Jews. And so who is best equipped to reach other Jews? Jews. Who would know how to relate best to their fellow Jew? Jews. And they knew that their fellow Jews would understand the meaning of that message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Jesus sends them to people that they are most equipped to reach. But secondly, this, uh, this going only to the, Gen- the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, it follows the biblical pattern of the good news of the gospel going first to the Jews and then the Gentiles. And then third, this one's the most hard to hear, it's that his disciples still harbored some animosity toward the Gentiles at this point. And that's going to come out in later chapters of Matthew, just wait until we get to some of the later chapters when Matthew calls one of the women that Jesus ministers to a Canaanite woman, uh, and Canaan didn't even exist at that time anymore. So uh, there's going to be a lot of racial and ethnic animosity. They still harbored that. They had not fully come to terms with Jesus being the Messiah of people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language, and especially they had not come to terms with grasping this idea of the Gentiles being equal citizens in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus only sends them to their fellow Jews. But I want you to notice what Jesus is doing here. We could go into a lot of detail. Here's what I want you to notice. Notice that Jesus sends his disciples to the people that they are most equipped to reach. That's what I want you to take away from this. He sends his disciples to the people that they are most equipped to reach. And that's the lasting significance for us today. Because oftentimes you have Christians who say, well, pastor, I do want to get involved. I know that I should be doing something in ministry. I know that I should be doing something for the kingdom, but I don't know what to do. And I don't know where to start. And we learn a lot from Jesus here because here's what we should understand. Our compassion should not just lead us to take action. Our compassion should direct our course of action. You tracking with me there? Our compassion should lead us to action, but also our compassion should direct our course of action. In other words, if you want to know where to serve and what to do, ask yourself this question, church. Who burdens my heart? Who are the people that I love most and I care about the most? And once you figure that out, you must let your compassion for those people direct your course of action. I mean, think about Jesus and his disciples. His Jewish disciples cared most about their fellow Jews. So what does Jesus do? He says, all right, I'm going to take your compassion for those people, and I'm going to use it to reach them with this message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here's what I want you to understand. This is still how God operates today. Do we know that? Amen? We know this? This is still... How God operates today. He's not going to like this, but I'm going to talk about my man, Brian Huffstetler, for a second. I love this man. And uh, Brian, if you ask him who his people are, who he loves the most and cares about the most, who he desires to reach the most, who burdens his heart, it's prisoners, isn't it, Brian? 
You see, Brian, having done time himself, knows what it's like to be on the other side of those bars. He knows what it's like to be in that place. He knows the struggles they go through. He knows the loneliness. He knows what they feel. He knows the problems that they deal with. And so when Brian gave his life to Christ and wanted to begin to serve Christ in his kingdom and wanted to know where to go and what to do, who do you think God used to reach prisoners for Christ? My man Brian. God burdened his heart to care for prisoners and reach them. And so God said to Brian the same thing that he said to his first disciples. He said, Brian... Go to your people. Go to the ones you love the most. Go to the ones that you care about the most. Go to the ones that you understand the most and begin to proclaim to them the good news of what Jesus has done. So Brian answered that call, and praise be to God, he's been serving in the prison ministry for over 10 years now, reaching prisoners for Christ. Praise God for that. And Brian's story, as awesome as it is, it's not even unique. That's not to take away from it, Brian. It's just to say, that's how God operates. I mean, I think of Tracy Gant right up the road. Y'all know Tracy? Yeah, Pickens County Shelter of Hope. Tracy, at one point in his life, he was addicted to drugs and alcohol, and he was homeless, ended up in prison, gets saved by the Lord. He gives his life to Christ, and then God calls him to serve in ministry. And do you think it's any accident that God is using a former addict and homeless person to reach addicts and homeless people. No, not at all. That's just what God does. He started the Pickens County Shelter of Hope where addicts and homeless people can get back on their feet. They can get uh, clean. They can get a place to stay in a job and a permanent, permanent residence. And most of all, they can hear about Jesus. And so notice what God does. He takes a person's past and he does the same thing he did with us in salvation. He cleans it off. He makes it new. He reuses it for his purposes. And he says, I'm going to show you what I can do even with someone like you. You who think that there's nothing you can do for me, I'm going to show you how I can use you. And so this is what God does. My question to you, church, this morning is this. Very simple. Who is this for you? Who are your people? Who burdens your heart? Who are you especially equipped to be able to reach and minister to? I mean, it could be anybody. It could be single mothers. It could be parents. Uh, It could be parents who have lost children. It could be the homebound. It could be veterans. It could be bikers. It could be academics. It could be sports people. It could be children. Literally, the options are endless, but there are going to be some group or groups of people as a Christian that burdens your heart. There's going to be a need that you care about, that you are especially equipped to reach. And God is saying, if that's true of you, and you've got that compassion in your heart, you have to let that compassion direct your course of action. And if you're still sitting here this morning, you're going, well, pastor, I get it. I'm following. I understand. I just don't know if I can do that. Let me encourage you with these last words. Look at verses 8 through 15. We won't go into detail for sake of time, but this is what Jesus says. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. 
And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now listen, here's basically what he's saying. He's saying don't treat the ministry like a business. You're not to go out charging people. As you go and just tell people you're in your house or in your neighborhood or at work about Jesus, you don't say, hey, five bucks and I'll tell you how not to go to hell. That's not what it's about here, okay? You're not trying to make money off this. He's saying go and just tell others about Jesus. That's, that's what you're supposed to do. Don't treat it like a business. And he's saying, and you don't need a bunch of preparation either. You don't need to take all this stuff with you. You are to make yourself dependent on God to provide you with everything you need as you go. That's what he's telling his his followers here. And he's saying, go to house to house, tell them about the kingdom. And this is going to be a message that some people are going to gladly receive. And it's going to be a message that other people vehemently reject. But you have no control over that. He's saying, but I want you to go now and begin to tell others about me and my kingdom. And so if you're sitting here going, well, well, pastor, I need to know this and I've got to do this and maybe I need to go to this training and I need to get this course. And all that. We can make all the excuses in the world, can't we? Christians are good at making excuses. I know it firsthand. You're not going to say amen because it hits too close to home. But all that to say, here's what Jesus is wanting us to know. He's saying, go as you are. It's that simple. Go as you are. He's saying nothing is stopping you from beginning to reach people with the gospel today. You have everything you need. You don't need a fancy degree or a seminary education to tell people about Jesus. You don't have to have hundreds of Bible verses memorized. He's saying you have everything you need to go and reach people for Christ today because, listen, you have seen the example of Jesus That's what matters. He says, you've seen how I interact with people. You see how I have reached out to people in their affliction. You see how I have treated people. You see how I have proclaimed the good news to people. Now take everything that you've seen and learned from Jesus and go and tell others about Jesus. Take what you've seen and learned from Jesus and go and do likewise. Listen to me. That's as hard as ministry needs to be. We try to overcomplicate things all the time. That's another thing about Christians. We love to overcomplicate things. That's as hard as ministry needs to be. Here's ministry. Focus on Jesus. Pay attention to how he treats people, what he says to people, and then, novel concept, go and do the same. That's it. It's that hard, okay? Go and do as Jesus has done. And here's the good news for you. He does say that many people are going to accept this message while many people reject it. Here's the good news for you and for me and for every Christian out there. You have no control over the results. Now you might be wondering, well, pastor, how's that good news? Here's the good news. Jesus never once requires us to produce results. He requires us to be faithful to go and proclaim the message. The Bible says you can either plant the seed or you can water the seed, but who gives the increase? God. God alone. I'm especially thankful for this because I have no control over the converts that might come to Christ. I cannot produce results. I cannot produce converts. And we're not called to do that. So you can freely go and tell others about Jesus, share the gospel with them, and if they reject it, guess what? They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. 
You don't have to produce the results. He says, I just want you to go and tell others. That's it. That's how simple it is. In church, we must go today. We have to get on mission with Jesus right now. You ask why? Look at our world. You want a clear example of how sin-sick this world is? Look at Hamas right now. Firing hundreds upon hundreds of rockets into Israeli civilian areas, killing hundreds upon hundreds of civilians, not even soldiers or military. You know what leads a person to do that? Sin that has corrupted the heart. This is a sin-sick world in which people justify killing each other over some land. You ask me why we have to get on mission now? You look at what sin has done to this world. You look at what sin has done to people. You see what Jesus sees. You see a people who are thrown down and flayed open, who are harmed and helpless and have this great need. And if that does not burden your heart as a Christian, if that does not absolutely grip your heart and wreck your heart as a Christian, I don't know what to say to you. I don't know how you can look at what sin has done to this world and the people of this world and not feel this compassion that we're talking about. It should bring us to our knees in prayer with tears flowing down our face, crying out to God, have mercy on them. Do something, Lord. And then He will say to us, I've told you what to do. If you truly care about them, take some action for them. If you truly care, then let that compassion direct your course of action. And go today. Nothing's holding you back. Nothing's stopping you. You have everything you need. You have the provision of the Father. You have the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And you have the message of the Son of God. And this world needs Christians to take the message of the Son of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, and tell them about the salvation of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is the only hope of our world. Amen? And so Christians, let's get active. Let's get on mission with Jesus and let's go today. Let's go to God in prayer.